Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Janis Sorensen, General Manager of the stunning luxury hotel The Beaumont in London. Coming up on today's show, Janis dishes out some world-class advice. Compete with the French concierge on restaurants and you'll always lose. Phil tries to retain control of the show. For God's sake, settle down. And Yanis tells us what can happen when the answer is always yes. We had a, a guest in, in, in one of the rooms who sort of asked the page boy to give him a little shoulder massage. All that and so much more as we talk through Yanis' story and journey to date, as well as some superb lessons learned from an amazing career, told with eloquence and humility. It really is not to be missed. Don't forget, we launch a brand new episode each week telling the amazing and always amusing stories from hospitality. So make sure you hit that subscribe button and give us a like and a share across your networks. We've got some cracking guests lined up in the coming weeks, so let's keep raising the bar and tell the world this really is the greatest industry on earth. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to another edition of Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street. Today we're back in London and I'm super delighted to welcome to the show the general manager of one of my favourite London hotels, that's the Beaumont. Uh, welcome to the show, Janis Sorensen. Thank you so much, Phil. Great to talk to you today. Yes, likewise. I realised before the show I was supposed to ask you how to pronounce your surname. Did I get it right? <laughs> yeah, Sorensen is, is great. I, I Interestingly enough, people have more difficulties with my first name. I think Sorensen people manage well, but I, I sort of, uh, right now when I go into Starbucks, I say, uh, yeah, it's for James, because by the time you spell, <laughs> you spell Janis, uh, you know, the coffee is cold. Yeah, no, I've uh, I'm Phil, as you know, mm. and um, I've seen all manner of ways to spell that in Starbucks. So I think it's always a question of who you get. It is, and and Sorensen is actually a Danish name. You know, I I'm born in Berlin in Germany, but the family comes from Denmark, and Sorensen is obviously the son of Søren. That's sort of the you know it's the same as Peterson. Yeah, um, you know, it's always that's how the name is built. So yeah, no, it's good. It's a very common name actually in in Denmark. Right. Got you. Okay. So how are you? I'm good. I'm good. And it was interesting, you know, us going into the podcast, we ha- I had a quick chat and I said, like, to say I'm good, it, it, you know, has a lot of value and meaning today, I guess. And, you know, yeah. I think we are very quick to say that everything is great and we're doing fantastic. And I think now, you know, just ask somebody if you really want to know the answer, you know, it's like there's, there's lots happening and there's lots of hardship. And I've come really, uh, you know, to a realization of, of how fortunate um, so many people still are in this crisis, you know, considering yeah. of how much hardship there is. So I'm, I'm glad to report that my team is well and my family is well uh, and, and myself, I'm, I'm doing well as well. So, yeah. Well, that's, I think, pretty much all you can ask for. I think um, in hospitality, a lot of the time we're we're absolutely conditioned to to just say, yeah, I'm amazing or yeah, great, because that's obviously the, the, the image you want to emit to the guests and your colleagues and you don't want to, to, to drain the energy from the room. But I think, you know, these are these are very weird times we live in and i think as we were discussing before we turned the microphone on it's uh, you know there are some simple things that we need to get right and i think you know health is just absolutely front and center if you've got that i think you're you're it's a good start absolutely 
Absolutely. Yeah, it, it has reshifted the focus a little bit, I think, for many of us. Yeah. In any case, I'm not going to make that uh, this chat about about that. There's plenty of content out there on that, if people so want. Uh, where in the world are you today? Well, I'm sitting in my office uh, in London's Mayfair at the Beaumont Hotel. Uh, I live uh, not very far from here, and uh, during this whole lockdown period, and right now um, I'm at the hotel every day, uh, you know, speaking to the team that is still here and looking after the building and uh, conduct calls from here and, and stay in touch with our supporters and our guests. And it's it's been, you know, very important for me for the team to be here and to be around and to have a sense of normality and also um, support for them. And at the same time, I'd have to, I have to say, it, you know, it keeps me sane as well. You know, it's I think this, this office... Uh, resembles a routine and normality and, and coming here and, and, and looking after the building and the team has been has been important for me as well during this time. Yeah, I think it's really hammered home. The I think you know, doing Zoom meetings and things like that is, is one thing, but actually the, the human contact, after a while, you feel like it becomes a necessary part of your life. Yeah, I, th- I think technology has evolved so quickly over the last, you know, two decades i'll say and um mm. and but we as humans we haven't you know it's like 20 years is nothing in, in the human evolution and i think we are almost trying to make sense of this technology around us and there's not so much you know only the discussion of what can we do but what should we do and what is it actually yeah. we want to do and just because it's available and possible uh, you know, it still might not be what what actually is right. And you know, when I started hotels in you know two thousand, there was an element of a of availability and and being reachable. But when a guest came to the front desk at the Adlon at the time and had a cell phone, uh, he or she was the most important person in the room. And today, when people come to our desk and I speak to them in the lobby and they don't have a cell phone, they often are the most important person in the room. So we've seen a big shift from connectivity and availability being a luxury to not being available, being a luxury. Um, Yeah. Which is good development, I feel. Yeah, that's I've never thought of it that way before. That's a a really interesting perspective, and I I totally get where you're coming from on that. And that's well, that's all part of evolution. And I really like the point you make about just because it's available and we can use it, it doesn't make it the right thing to do. No, and there's no social norms around it. If you think of it. It's so new and it's like an avalanche coming over a population and you walk the streets of London and you go into restaurants and you sit on airplanes. I mean, you sat on airplanes, um, (laughs) hopefully again soon. And people are consumed by these little devices everywhere. And even when you meet people or you have lunch and dinner with people, I feel there's a real lack of sort of etiquette and social norm. Nobody really knows on what is right and what is wrong in the way we interact with these devices and in the mm. way we interact with these devices when we are around other people. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm turning 40 next year. So when the iPhone came out, I, I'm sort of consciously aware of not having an iPhone. And lots of people today 
just don't know the world without an iPhone. So we sort of prefer back and in our way of how we deal with these devices, we still compare and we still sort of say, well, this is how we did it and this is how we do it now. Whereas there's so many young people out there who just have never done it without an iPhone. So, but then there's not really a rule of, of, of what is too much and, and, and when shall we use it and when shall we not? And what does it actually do to us and our ability to, to socialize and to connect with people? And I feel there's a, obviously a big research body around this um, and yet long-term studies are obviously not available yet because it's all so recent and, and technology yeah. will continue to evolve so quickly. And in many ways, I don't think the challenge won't be you know, can we get things fast enough or innovative enough? But how, as a as a human people, will we deal with this? Um, yeah. Or not? Well, at, at, at the the risk of sounding like my parents, I am amazed at how quickly things move forward in in tech. And I think it, it's actually it's really relevant to the the hotel space as well because there's obviously things that come in that can make life easier i suppose on the face of it but we we have to remember that fundamentally it's it's a hospitality business and i i still don't think you can deliver a a full hospitality experience through using tech alone the human element is you know absolutely critical to that yeah i mean a device or a, a, a program doesn't care for you but I think that hospitality benefits in a great deal from technology evolving, and I feel we need to embrace it and use it for our purposes rather than demonize it and see it as competition because it's here to stay. So we have to yeah. deal with it. And Absolutely. I feel when technology is able to allow processes and transactions to minimize and facilitate that aspects of a hotel experience or a, a hospitality experience in a wider sense, then that's a win-win. So we can spend more quality time with our guests. If the interaction is being taken away by technology but not being replaced by human interaction, then we lose. And I think that guests uh, will feed that back and are already feeding that back, that we, we don't want to get rid of the human interaction we just don't want to interact with humans if it's transactional only because that doesn't benefit a relationship yeah no absolutely i couldn't agree more and i I realize that we're 10 minutes into this and uh, we've gone deep very very quickly (laughs) normally this doesn't happen until about minute 40 or something like that so we've we've done well well there you go yeah so let's no time to waste. Absolutely. Let's uh let's take it light uh again and yes. let's go all the way back to the uh, the beginning of your your career. You mentioned um around the 2000 mark and you were uh, born and bred in Berlin? Yeah, born born and bred in Berlin in in West Berlin um at the time next to Kurfürstendamm and my parents had moved to Berlin at the end of the 70s and then obviously I was born at the beginning of the 80s and went to school in Berlin and did my A-levels in Berlin and sort of had the reflection at the time that I didn't want to go straight to university. I think like many, you know, after 13 years of school, I was looking forward to actually doing something, seeing a direct 
output of, of my of my doing yeah and as, as much as I never discounted and and also consequently haven't discounted studying I felt that it wasn't necessarily for me the right moment after school to continue straight away to study and especially in in the field of hospitality um, I think there's different opinions as to at what point in the career or in everybody's career is the right person to 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 do studies and I think there's no right or wrong answer there but for me it, it wasn't a priority so I at the time to be honest fell into hospitality uh, through a friend who told me that she was doing an apprenticeship at a hotel in Berlin called the Adlon which was and is a Kempinski hotel just off the Brandenburg gate and you know we spoke about the contrast in in technology then then and there yeah but also when you look at recruitment at the Adlon to do an apprenticeship which is paid I mean very low uh, you needed to do an unpaid internship for one year before you even qualified for the apprenticeship which was then three years right and to qualify for this unpaid internship they organized assessment centers that ran over two days where a hundred people sort of jumped through hoops and went through questionnaires and role plays to then qualify 20 or 25 at the end to to do this unpaid internship so if you look at the recruitment crisis that we had last year and and how difficult it is to find talent to join the industry at the time it was really a a very different picture Um, that's 20 20 years on and yeah Yeah. something's been missed somewhere but I, I I did the um, internship, and at the internship level, or the, this this first year, you get either to work with a concierge, or you get to work with housekeeping, or with the F and B areas. And uh, I was uh, on day one uh, a page boy at the Adlon Hotel with a little red hat. Consequently, then uh, became a doorman, um, spent a year working in the concierge department and, and thoroughly enjoying it. Uh, before I then went on to spend time in all areas of the hotel and I really uh, valued and and still value the apprenticeship model in hospitality. I feel that when you leave an apprenticeship in hospitality, you really have a a very good overview and understanding around the the workings of of the hotel, uh, especially on an operational basis. And after the apprenticeship, I, I actually didn't really want to straight away continue with this career. I was sort of set of going to Australia and taking, you know, a, a little bit of time off and travel. And yeah. it was only a conversation that I had in the elevator with my former head concierge at the Adlon who looked at me and said, what are you going to do after your apprenticeship? And I said, I'm going to go travel. And he looks at me, no, you're not. You're going to join me and become a concierge. And I said, well, can I think about this for a yeah. day? And, uh, <laughs> Do I have a say and, in this? <laughs> do, do I have a say in it? And, uh, and actually, it just, you know, it just became clear quite quickly that this was a great option for me. And, and I started to work as an assistant concierge with Raffaele Sorrentino at the Adlon and loved every minute of it. And, you know, the, the whole association of the Golden Keys uh, became just a fascination for me. And I, I, I love the, the very personal and, and, and almost delicate 
conversations that you have with guests because the world of concierge is all about the beauties of life you know it's all about eating and good music and theater the, the whole performing arts and yeah you know, museums and history and 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 how you connect a guest to the city and to get to connect the guest to to life and and i felt the conversation changed and where i'd seen guests being apprentice in different areas the the conversations i had with the same guest at the concierge desk seemed to be such a meaningful and more meaningful conversation that actually was so educational for me as well and so i, I love being a concierge and i'm i'm you know ever grateful to to Raffaele that he sort of well decided for me that yeah. surfing wasn't the right thing yeah. set, you, <laughs> and, set uh, your career path up for you it really did and i so i worked with him um at the adlon for a year and what what I, was I sort of, before we move on yeah. what was the yeah. what was the most repeatable outrageous request that you had as a concierge well it came only after um it came only after uh, many years of the concierge that, that I had really, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a little later that happened in New York, which was really funny. Right, but okay. I remember, a, I remember a story from the Adlon, which I, which I loved and <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> which still makes me smile. So, you know, in hospitality, we always, um, we always say yes, do we? And, um, <laughs> and we're sort of prone to always do the right thing for the clients. And, and one day, you know, later on, uh, when I was at the concierge, we were looking for a page boy at one point and we couldn't find him. And uh, eventually we found him and we had a, a guest in, in, in one of the rooms who sort of asked the page boy to give him a little shoulder massage because he was so tense. So we found <laughs> this page boy, you know, in the room giving a little neck and shoulder massage to our client, which is just, I mean, it was so, it was so harmless. And it was, but it, it just made me realize of how, you know how eager people are to please, and yeah. and and they made me smile. You know, just to find my page boy in a, in a guest room, just helping helping a guest. Multitasking. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, we made a booking for the spa eventually. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So then, uh, I did I did cut you off, so I I do apologize for that. But from there, where did you go next? I went to Paris. Um, something really started at this point, which was something that repeated itself on my career a little bit which was that I I started to feel comfortable at the concierge I I still had a lot to learn and I still you know was inspired and looked up to my fellow concierge colleagues that had been working at the Adlon for a much longer time than I did and yet I felt that in in my day to day I I had challenged myself enough to to become comfortable with what sort of my daily duties and the daily questions and the daily tasks were. And one of the things that sort of started at this point was that I, I wasn't very comfortable being comfortable. And I wanted to put myself again into a, an uncomfortable situation and in a, in a situation of, of growth and, you know, exploration. So I, I sort of had in my head to learn French and in school, I have to admit that I never really liked the French language. I, I, I also had a teacher that I didn't like, which I think in school is always a, a good indicator of how you like a subject. It's a or massive you don't, part you know? of it, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? So, so, um, so French was never really on my radar and, and nothing that I really enjoyed tremendously during school. So my French, I, I, I didn't speak French. That, that was just the truth of it. But I was, I was set to go 
And um, obviously to apply for a job in Paris, being in Berlin, being 23, not speaking French, I, I didn't see a big chance of this happening. So I, I resigned at the Adlon and I said to my head concierge, I'm going to Paris and I'm going to work in Paris. And he said, well, are you sure you want to do this? I think this is going to be very difficult and you should stay and learn more here. And, you know, I, I, I think you might fail going to Paris. It's going to be very challenging. It sounds like he'd prefer you to go to Australia. <laughs> well, it, it almost, you know. And but 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 the interesting thing, and and one thing that I, you know, always didn't know at the time, but appreciated, you know, in hindsight, is that Raphael at the time wasn't trying to discourage me to go. He just tested me if I if I was really determined to. Yeah. And at the time where I had a breakfast with him at one point, and and we had a longer conversation again, and. He said, "Do you really, do you really go?" And I said, "Yes, it's 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 done. I'm going." And he looks at me and he smiles and he says, "I'll help you, and, and we'll make this a success." So he 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 turned and um and he really challenged me, and then he supported me. Yeah. So I went to Paris with my you know suitcase, uh, having no job, not really a flat. I I had a a possibility to stay uh, in a flat uh, of of the friend of my sister's for three weeks, uh, somewhere next to Place de Clichy. And uh, so I, I went to Paris. Uh, obviously, my parents and my grandparents were quite, not worried, but a little, you know, yeah, yeah. interested in what this young man is doing there. And so I, I went and I, I made the tour of all the big hotels. And I, you know, I went to all the palace hotels and, and spoke to them and applied for the job. And the reoccurring theme really was is we we appreciate and and almost you know are surprised by your eagerness and 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 proactive approach to just move to the city but because you don't speak french we can't really help you and that was until i was speaking to the four seasons in paris and rafael sorrentino had worked in paris my um, head concierge from berlin several years ago many years ago at the Lancaster Hotel with a gentleman called Roderick Levijac, who then became the head concierge of the Four Seasons in Paris. So one of the things as a concierge that you learn very quickly is that in service through friendship. So it's a very tight-knit uh, net of, 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 of like-minded people all around the globe. And, and that connection helped me to... Uh, obtain uh, an interview at the Four Seasons, and I, I spoke to Roderick at the time, and and he was keen to give me an opportunity to work with him at the desk, and I was sort of speaking to human resources, and then at the end I spoke to Leah Marshall, who will come back in my career much later when I worked at the Bristol in Paris uh, again, right. and I remember sitting in front of Leah, and at the time I had whatever, already had three or four interviews in other hotels. And I looked at Lee and said, Lee, I want to be quite frank with you. I, I, I don't speak French. She looked at me and she smiled and she said, and you're here to learn it. And that was it. So yeah. Lee just took this leap of faith in, in this, you know, young German kid who just went over to Paris with his suitcase and not really a prospect of a job. And, uh, and at the time, the Four Seasons, like it is today, was really one of the, the, the most prominent hotels in the Parisian, you know, hotel landscape. And 
I found it incredible at the time and it has really shaped me as a leader and, and, and the way I look at development of, of, of how people over the years took, took faith in my development. So I started to work in Paris in the back office. Obviously, I, I couldn't really stand at the desk because I wouldn't have been able yeah. to communicate with anybody. <laughs> <That's fair>. um, <laughs> but, I, I, but I worked in the back office and the, the concierge of the Four Seasons had a, a back office of three, four concierges who were helping the concierges at the desks to make a lot of the arrangements and restaurant reservations. And I had uh, two colleagues, Sylvain and Pilar at the time, who, who really welcomed me as, as a part of that family and, and you know helped me to learn French. And I found my little cafes and I bought an orange scooter, you know, a scooter from the seventies, which uh, was yeah older than myself and, and broke down every other day. But I sort of discovered Paris on this little orange Vespa and um, found a, a cafe in the Rue Montargueil where I lived. And uh, Stefan, who is a friend until these days, uh, you almost told me French, you know, standing at his counter, having croissants and coffee and, he tells me today that he was quite amused by the <laughs> the German kid who who went inside and trying to to learn French with him. Yeah. But it, I was I was so immersed in the city and I was so immersed in the language and I started to realize that people are happy in French and annoyed in French and motivated in French and angry in French and fell in love in French and 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 I just I just loved it and I loved the language and it was such a different approach and. I, I was like a sponge, you know, Paris was like a sponge. I remember the first half year I was coming home and just falling asleep because I felt like my, my brain was just oversaturated by all these, you know, wonderful things that, that I was seeing and hearing all day and, and learning a language is, a, is obviously quite tiring yeah, for, sure. for, for anybody. But I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and consequently uh, learned to speak French more and more and was then moved again, thanks to Roderick, to the front, which was a very, uh, you know, leap of faith Big again, step. because, yeah. I, you know, half a year in, you know, as much as I could speak a little French, I was far from fluent. <laughs> and uh, I remember it was it was funny, because when I went out at night, I only spoke French in a very formal way. So I would go to a bar with friends and uh, sort of say to the bartender, if he were kind enough to uh, pour me a beer and look at me and say, like, who's this weirdo? Because I, I couldn't speak French, how you would speak French in a bar. I just know yeah, the, the textbook. season Georges V, I speak to a guest French. Yeah. <laughs> and um, no, that, 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 was, that was great. And I, I loved it. And um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the, the camaraderie at, at the desk and the association of the clear door. And at the time... Um, and that's another thing that I think in a career always comes back is you see people several times in your career. And my premier concierge, so my direct superior at the Georges V was a gentleman called Christophe Caron. And Christophe today is my head concierge at the Beaumont. Really? So, yes. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so he helped me at the time to to get to grips with the, sister, with the city and with the language and really was a, a mentor to me uh, along, you know, many others uh, at the time to, to, to not only learn the city, but also learn the language. Um, so that was fabulous. And I was then uh, introduced to the Golden Keys and, and Roderick um, and Roger Bastoni, who is a, a very well-known concierge. He's, he's retired now, but he worked at the Majestic in Cannes. 
Roderick and, and Roger became my sort of godfathers for my application to the Golden Key Association, the Clé d'Or in France. And it's really the, you know, the symbol worldwide of the Golden Key Association are these two golden cross keys at the lapel. So I was able to become a golden key concierge uh, two, two and a half years in being in, in Paris, which, you know, I still have the keys. I mean, it's an association that I still value and, and still interact with yeah. um, regularly. But, you know, I, I think, you know, what, what happened next <laughs> was that I, uh, I was comfortable. Um, uh, not uh, we don't want that. <laughs> well, exactly. I, not, 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 not too comfortable. I mean, obviously, there was still so much to learn. And, you know, I was so far behind in, in knowledge and, you know, in the way I could respond to our guest request and my fellow colleagues that were just the best in their field. And yet I, you know, spoke French better and better. I knew the city very well. And uh, my little orange Vespa had been, I think, in almost every little alley in the city. And I, I, I was, again, at one point saying, what's next? And I, I loved the, the fact that I could learn a language and, and be immersed in a culture. Because I think one of the things that people always forget is not it's not only learning a language, you, you, you learn a whole culture. There's a whole education that comes with living in a foreign country, of course. And I, I loved it. And one day I said, well, okay, now I need to learn Spanish. And <laughs> I applied at the Ritz-Carlton in, in Barcelona at the time and spoke with Roderick, who again said, oh, Janis, you know, we have plans and you should stay and, you know, you still have so much to learn. And Yeah. For God's sake, and settle like, down. For, for, for God's sake, settle down. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and but yet again, like Raffaele Sorrentino at the time, at the time he knew I was determined. He was very helpful in the process and and did whatever he could to help me pave the way to this to this next endeavor. And well, I I, I resigned and I uh, applied for a job at the Ritz Carlton in Barcelona. And at the time, that was two thousand and six. I think seven it was the only hotel really in Barcelona you know today it's such a prominent city for hospitality but at the time the Ritz-Carlton was really the, the most famous and and almost only luxury five-star hotel wow that's incredible and um it's it is yeah it, it, and I mean now obviously Barcelona has such a, a rich portfolio of fabulous hotels yeah. and um I remember going to to Spain and speaking to the to the Ritz Carlton and to Victor Clavel, who was the managing director of the Ritz Carlton. And uh, I found myself a little bit like with Leah again at the end of my sort of interviews, sitting in front of him. And I don't know if you ever met Victor Clavel, but he's no. uh, an, an incredible personality. And I mean, just a very charismatic, incredibly chic and, and driven hotelier. I mean, it's really a person you. I look up to and, and, and many others do and quite imposing as well and intimidating, you right. know, to, to be honest at the time. And, and he, again, he looked at me and he said, like, how are you going to do this? You don't speak a word of Spanish and, you know, yes, you're a golden key concierge, but you have never been in Barcelona before. And as a concierge, you need to know your city. That's, that's really what you do, is it? And, and you are a tourist in, in a city that you need to recommend to other people. Which is a fair and point. Which is a very fair point. And, and I think to an extent, 
the move to Paris then became a, um, a catalyst for these next moves because I, I said to Mr. Clavel at the time that I was in a very similar position, if not the exact same position when I moved to Paris and it, it had op obviously worked out. And um, I sort of said to him, I'll, I'll do whatever I can to make this, you know, a, a similar uh, positive outcome at the Ritz-Carlton. And again, he didn't have to, you know, he just took, he just took a, a leap of faith and, I think he saw a, a very eager, very green, you know, young hotelier who who wanted to get out of his comfort zone and 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 you know be part of his team. And yeah. it's these people and these moments in a career that really define you know you. And and I've I've been ever since in touch with Victor Clavel, and he's you know I've, I've seen him over the years, and he stayed at the hotels that I I worked, and and I'm very grateful. And I started to work then at the the, the, the desk there at, at the Ritz Carlton, and uh, had had a great time. The one thing that I want to learn before I move on, because I'm conscious of me ranting away, you know, it's all right, no problem. Is that um, that we Maria, who was the head concierge there, um, she met me when I arrived there on my first day, and. I came very prepared to that meeting. Uh, I had my, you know, little textbook and I, I had learned the credo and the mission statement and I started to learn about Barcelona. And I, so I was meeting my boss for the very first time and and she sits in front of me and she looks at me and um, she says, Yanis, the most important thing is that you're happy. Also a fair point. And I said to her, okay, okay, great. And and he says, no, 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 Yanis, the most important thing is that you are happy here. And that was it. That's all she wanted to talk about in this first meeting. And she set the tone. And it's, again, a, a, a leadership lesson that I've never forgotten. And I have quoted her many times over the years because she's so right. She's so right. Yeah. You can never perform well if you're not happy in the environment that you're in. And um, while I, I loved every little bit of Barcelona, I mean, what a city to live in. And um, at, at one point, you know, after a, a year or so, I um, I thought there's two choices, you know, either settle here and, and never leave because it's just wonderful, or I have to go really quickly because yeah. otherwise I'm going to get stuck here. And my plan was to go to Rome, actually, at the time um, and learn Italian. No, <laughs> Yes, but that didn't that didn't really work out because I had a, a girlfriend at the time who lived in New York and we were discussing of what's next and sort of for her it was important at the time to be in New York and so well, you go to well, America and, you, and and learn to speak American exactly yeah. so you know I said well New York is 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 great too and you know being a concierge in New York I guess it's a little bit the you know baptism it was like that there's just no city like new york to be a concierge and and again something happened which you know uh, is 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 so important in, in in anybody's career is is how people help you to to make the next step and people trust you and what i didn't know was that roderick uh, who was the head concierge in paris had called the head concierge at the Pierre at the time, a gentleman and president of the Golden Key Association called Maurice Dancer. And uh, he called me one evening at the 
concierge desk in Barcelona out of the blue, and I've never met or heard of him before. And he said, this is Maurice Stenson. I'm calling you from New York, and I understand you want to come to New York and, and work here. And I said, yes. And he says, okay, um, well, obviously, we're trying to help you. In the meantime, I'm looking for an old friend, he says to me. And I said, okay. And he says, there's a man by the name of Adolfo Luna. And I've not seen him for 25 years. And I'd like you to help me because all I know is that 25 years ago, he worked in a, in a museum in, in Barcelona and we lost track of one another. So I went on the quest to find Adolfo Luna and I went to the museum and I looked in the archives. And, and to cut a long story short, I found the guy somewhere outside of Madrid and was able to connect the two of them together. And that sort of, I think, prompted Maurice to an extent to really put his efforts behind to help me. And I uh, was connected to Rajan Lai, who was the director of human resources at the Plaza Hotel that was recruiting for their reopening there. And and they, you know, further to Maurice's uh, help, uh, interviewed me at the time. And I uh, then moved to New York again without having a job. Uh, but the interview at the Plaza Hotel for the reopening that was scheduled for later this year, that year. And I was interviewed for a position of concierge and uh, was successful in, in, in that interviewing process. And when I saw the general manager, uh, a South African gentleman by the name of Shane Craig, I think that's how he would pronounce his name. I, I, I'll never be able to, to do it as well as he does, of course. Yeah. I looked at him and he says, okay, you're going to be a concierge. And I said to him, you know, Shane, I actually wanted to be the assistant head concierge. Um, and he says, how and why? And you have never been here and you don't know New York. And why would you do that? And I said to him, because over the years, I really loved, you know, helping a team to be better at what they do so well. And I've, you know, sort of started to to look so much at my colleagues over the last couple of years. and and was learning from them, but was also always trying to find my role in these teams and seeing like, how can I that not necessarily has the best knowledge or the best experience still be a valuable member to, to these teams and, and, and allow people to, to even be better at what they do. And well, and you know, it, it sort of repeated itself and Shane took a, a leap of faith and he, you know, allowed me to be the assistant head concierge and, and manage a team of, incredible concierges and um i spent two you know uh, two years you know maybe two of the the best years of, of my career in new york and met rafael palais the head concierge there in uh, in new york and uh, loved being a concierge in new york but but what really came out of this experience in new york was the fact that i loved you know being with the team and managing the bellman and the doorman and, and the fellow concierge team and really helping people to unite behind a, a vision that we set out with Raphael yeah. together. And and that's why I decided at the time to to end uh, my career as a concierge and, um, and consequently then went on to travel through America and and wanted to go to Japan, actually, to do a management training. And I went to Japan and I spoke to people there, but that was right when the financial crisis hit. So this endeavor didn't work out at the time. And I returned to New York and was luckily contacted by the Connaught Hotel that I wasn't very much aware of. London hadn't been a, a destination for me uh, on the career path so far. And 
Nick Yanell, who is a friend and mentor still to this point, who was a rooms manager uh, at one point at the Four Seasons in Paris, had sent my CV to Anthony Lee, who was the general manager at the Connaught, because they had worked together many, many years ago. And he said, look, this is a, a young man that I think you, you, you might want to uh, have a look at. And so the, the Connaught sort of came out of the blue and they they hired me when I was in New York and I, I came to the Connaught at the end of 2009. And that was maybe the, the, the one of the biggest sort of steps back and, and, and the, the steps to be uncomfortable again, that I went from a, a very comfortable position as being an assistant head concierge to being a reception supervisor at the Connaught. Right. Um, so took a, obviously a massive pay cut and a very, you know, living from in the West Village to going to, you know, Stockwell in a flat share uh, was a yeah. big change, but a very welcome change. And I really was determined in, you know, trying to have a bigger impact on a hotel operation and, and met Natalie Seiler, uh, consequently, who became the general manager at the, at the Connaught and is a friend and mentor till this day and sort of progressed at the Connaught to become a rooms division manager uh, moved back to Paris because Leah Marshall and Didier Le Calvez, who are both uh, friends and mentors till this day, then called me and, and said, do you want to come to Paris to be a rooms manager at the Bristol in Paris? And I did that for a year before. We've still then got your, uh, your orange Vesper, which will dust no, off. That, that, <laughs> I, no, no, that, that actually... Um, you know, I tried to sell it, but I think you know at the time it it had it it had done its dues. You know, <laughs> um, but but um, yeah, when I went back to Paris, and then uh, a year or so in, the Beaumont called and said, you know, do you consider to come to London and be the general manager of the Beaumont? And and yet again, I would have never really applied for that position. It, you know, being a rooms manager, I. I, I I wouldn't, you know, it, being a general manager wasn't the next step for me, logically, uh, or I yeah. wouldn't have applied for it. But what had happened is that my former reception manager um, at the Connaught had mentioned to Jeremy King, who founded the, the Beaumont, that, you know, he had worked with me. And when they were looking for a general manager, he entertained the idea to get in touch with me. And, and, and they did. And I was, you know, obviously surprised and humbled and and you know a little unsure about this prospect because it was a big step i was 34 at the time so still very young in a career to become a general manager and but i you know i've always i've always sort of taken to these opportunities and i said well i i want to meet Leica and ninoska and and Jeremy King and Chris Corbin, and I have to say that I was I was just so inspired by the vision of, of Jeremy and the team and, and what they were set out to do at the hotel. And yet again, Jeremy King took a huge leap of faith. Uh, you know, he had a, a wonderful opening general manager and Paul Brackley, and then was recruiting for sort of the, the next general manager who would sort of start really, you know, uh, setting in place the operation and and building the hotel to to what we all wanted it to be and it wasn't a safe bet that jeremy took at the time you know taking yeah. the rooms manager who's 34 who has never had a you know a general manager let alone hotel manager role in his life before and and make him your general manager in in, in what is a very important project for you 
was an incredible leap of faith. But I, you know, I, Jeremy and I, from our first conversation, you know, I was, I was, I was inspired by his vision. And I think he understood as well that I, I, I shared his, his view on hospitality and, and we, we sort of were speaking from the same page and, um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I so much embraced that role right from the start and the time working with Jeremy was, was truly inspirational. So that's five years ago, Phil. And uh, you know, now, now we're here and it's October, 2020 and, uh, yeah, and you're nearly 40 uh, yeah. and I'm nearly 40. <laughs> Sorry to remind you. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so yeah, that's, that's, I guess in a nutshell of where I came here, um, yeah, I, do you know the, the interesting thing about that is that the re- recurring theme through your career is that that people have taken a chance on you, that you're not necessarily the most qualified person in the room for the position, but that actually taking a chance on people whose attitude is in the right place, who's got drive and determination, and you know who people who want to be stretched. I mean, you said it yourself all the way back at the beginning that you, you're uncomfortable being comfortable. Um, you know, that, yeah. that says that in your demeanor, there is a, a, a psychology going on that says it's, you know, we, we need to keep pushing. And that's not pushing for the sake of pushing. That's just about the, you know, making things better. You do learn more when you're outside of your comfort zone. So, so no, I I absolutely take my hat off to you in terms of one having the the drive and the determination to actually go after that in the first place. But, but two, I suppose also you could then say that there is there's an element of luck that you you get put in front of the right people who can facilitate that as well. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think this element of of hard work and, and determination is also something that, you know, can't be underestimated. I mean, thinking back when I came to Paris and I had this first position that I really didn't deserve. I mean, I was walking and driving with my little Wesper through Paris almost 24 hours a day. And I mean, I realized at the desk at the time of like, well, how can I add value? And I sort of, you know, compete with a French concierge on restaurants and you'll always lose, <laughs> you know? Right. So I knew that that wasn't the focus, but I said, well, I might focus on museums and exhibitions and, and, and classical music. And I mean, you know, I, I spent it, it, I walked through shoes and shoes and shoes, you know, getting into each museum and, and learning each exhibition that, you know, four or five months later, people would refer to me when a question came around museums because I spent so much time and so much effort and so much, you know, uh, enthusiasm to learn the topic. So I feel that you you should be, you have to be in the right place at the right time. And you need to have yeah. people take faith in you, but you also need to redeem that faith. And people only empower you and trust you and come back to doing so if you give it your all. Um, otherwise you get that chance once. And I think that's really important. It's not so much this element of being the best at everything, but when we, when we entrust people to do something and we give them that leap of faith, we obviously want to see that people do more than is expected to re- to redeem that. And I think that's a responsibility that is on each one of us uh, to 
you know, uh, redeem people's trusts and actually do the hard work, even if people don't look, you know, like the, the real work and, and I guess success in many ways, we, we often look at positions and at appointments and at job titles, but the real success isn't the announcement or the, the day you post the stuff on LinkedIn eventually. I mean, being successful is all the years leading up to this, all the hard work, yeah. all the, 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 you know, the, 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 the energy and effort that you put into it, all the self, this sort of, you know, uh, work that you do for, 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 the, for the greater good of your clients and your team rather than for yourself. And I think that always pays back. Um, but it's it's a lot of hard work. I think luck is an element of it, but you can't rely on it. No, no, absolutely not. And you know the the, the old cliche of you make your own luck. I think is absolutely key to your story as well, because you know you put yourself in these situations where you were able to have conversations with these people, and okay, you know these people then made the the leap of faith to say that there's something here, but they don't make that leap of faith if there's if there's not something there. So you definitely made your own luck in the, in this story. And I think this element of not being comfortable, and, and that's really something that I try to convey to people that I work with and, and you know, young people in, in, in the industry and people who start in the industry, is this element of don't harvest too early, don't get comfortable. You know, like living in New York in the West Village, being an assistant head concierge of a hotel, I mean, that was a good life, you know, and then going yeah. back to London and being right down at the food chain again, you know, living in a tiny room in, in Stockwell. And but I knew this this was, you know, I knew that I, I didn't want to settle too early. I knew that I needed to reinvest any everything that I'd gained so far to start again. And I think that this element of, you know, don't be too protective of the success or the you know, uh, sort of the, the, the financial or position success that you have, but continue to invest that and, 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 and follow what it is that you want to do, even at the risk of losing some of the comfort along the way, because at the end, you know, you, you end up in a position that, that, that you feel most comfortable in for the long term, because otherwise it, you know, you might be comfortable for some time, but might regret eventually that you, didn't take another leap of faith to progress to what you actually want to do yeah no absolutely another uh, interesting thing that I, I picked up there is that you you seem to really have a, a genuine interest in the places that you live and I uh, I say that knowingly because I, I read uh, an article very recently um, I think it was which one was it it was the uh, maybe the Mayfair Times you did a piece on what you're reading right now this was in lockdown and all of the books had something to do with London. Yes. Well, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, and that, I guess being a concierge also sort of opened me up to this because you don't, you don't live in a hotel, you live in a city and the city really becomes your canvas and learning a language, learning a culture and, and really, diving into the richness of, of each environment that you that you live in. And I've always felt um, quite compelled to it and, and encourage people that I work with to really, you know, open the blinders and, and not only look at your professional career, but at your personal career to, to say, how do you become 
you know, an interesting person, you know, some somebody who who's also continuously interested, continuously staying curious and and hospitality in many ways, the you know, the, the, the technical aspect of it, you, you can learn it. And, and there is, you know, also the sort of you know, the, the, the financial element of it. It's not rocket science, you know. It's not. It's not easy either, but it's not rocket science. And I think yeah. that the the element of of being a hotelier, you know, really asks people to develop as people as well, and not only as professional. And we should never forget that or put that on the wayside. You always continuously need to invest in in yourself and and be in charge of that inspiration because. You know, often when you speak to mid-managers or people who start in the industry, there's often, you know, unfortunately a frustration about a superior or a manager or, you know, this element of I'm giving so much, but I don't get back the development or I don't feel inspired or, you know, there's an element of I'm owed the development, I'm owed to be inspired. And one thing that I learned quite early in in my career, and maybe also through the concierge, is that the only person who's in charge of your development and and being inspired is yourself. Yeah. And it's a it's a much more reliable source of inspiration because it doesn't mean that you don't work like I've done all my career with people that inspire you, but it can't and should never be the only source of inspiration. So. Mm. You know what? What are the people that you listen to who might have nothing to do with hospitality? Uh, you know who, what are the books that you read? You know what are the whatever like philosophers that 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 help you to live a better life? And I think that that element and and that empowerment that you're in charge of that yourself. I've always taken great comfort in that because. If you have a manager or you have a conversation with a manager that you don't feel inspired by, you're actually not focusing on that. You're focusing on what you can learn from the person because you know that there is a constant stream of inspiration that comes to you anyways. And, and, yeah. and, and, you know, and, and that just takes the sting out of it. And, and everything that you get still from the people that you work with and the people that you know, are your superiors is, is um, an added bonus. But you shouldn't rely on it. Yeah. I, well, and then look at also the travel element of uh, of how that adds value to your your inspiration and your your viewpoint because you've you've worked and lived in all of these different cultures. I can imagine only that that brings so much to now kind of your outlook on things and and the way that you experience things and the way that you speak to people. And all of these things, it's it's a massive part of the education, I would imagine. Yeah, and I, I do encourage people, obviously, to travel and, and to leave the nest in a way. It's You can't fast-track that. You know, you cannot yeah. fast-track learning a language. You can't fast-track to understand how it is to live in, in the French capital or how it is to live in New York or in, in other places. Um these human experiences and, 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 and being immersed in a culture and learning a language, there's no immediate gratification here. These are processes. And I always encourage people to, to don't wait too long to put yourself out of this comfort zone and do travel. Because I do appreciate having, you know, had a little boy myself this year. Once you have family and, and children, 
it's not that it's impossible, but it obviously becomes, you know, a little bit more of a logistical effort to still move around. Yeah. Um, than it is when you're at the beginning of your 20s and, you know, all you have, like me at the time, was my suitcase and, you know, eagerness to, to, to get out there. And so I think we shouldn't wait for this. And I think it's a great education and something that I'm, I'm very happy that, that, that I did at the time that I did it. Yeah, I, I absolutely. I can only, I've, I've traveled a little bit, but it was very comfortable travel because it was uh, on a cruise ship. Um, <laughs> so that, that don't, I'm not sure yeah. that even counts. <laughs> and um, Oh, absolutely. But then yeah. I did do a, a six-month stint around Australia. And again, yeah. okay, I wasn't learning a new language, although in some places you go to Australia, it is like learning a new language. But it, it does really, I just think it, it balances you in a way that you can't really quantify just in the sense of you you see different ways of doing things different ways of living that make you question certainly made me question okay is that the right way to do it or okay is the direction i've been heading the right thing to do uh, and all of these things and i think travel is just such a, a wonderful thing it brings so much and just yeah. regrettably we can't do as much of it currently as we'd like to i think but that's a well, whole guess, different story. Well, I guess I guess traveling and living in different countries makes you realize that obviously your people are well traveled are normally tolerant, right? You, you're just exposed to so yeah. many different cultures and 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 ways of of living your life. But you also realize that we're all the same, you know. Like we all strive for for the same aspirations. We all cherish family. We all cherish friendships and. It's sort of this, you know, it's it's wonderful because it's such a diverse planet and yet we're all humans, you know, and it's sort of it sort of makes you realize that when you travel that, you know, as much as people, you know, speak different languages and look different and live in different circumstances, you know, we're we're one people, you know, and, yeah. and you take that inspiration of 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 different cultures, but but notwithstanding that you always be able to connect because we're with the same creed and 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 that's um yeah that, that that's one of the elements that i that i loved traveling and this element of learning languages which i really really encourage people to do is you just see people differently i i think anybody who speaks a foreign language if you speak to somebody uh, say you have a, a conversation with a guest from from france and you speak English to that person. And even though this person might be bilingual in English and English is not your first language, the moment you speak somebody's mother tongue, you see the person differently because they express themselves differently. We all do when we speak our, our mother mother tongue. Yeah. And, and I think that access to people and that almost that appreciation for these people because you learn their language, um, you know, ha ha has been very enriching to me. Uh, not only professionally but privately. I mean, I'm I'm married to a wonderful French woman. Yeah. So, well, you're keeping the international dream alive. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't imagine how many languages your 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 son's going to end up speaking, but um, yeah. I suppose that'll He's, be his choice. He'll be confused, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the. Obviously, at, at the moment, we're in a, a very weird time, and um, and I know that your your hotel remains closed for the moment but I, I was very very interested to to hear the announcement just only last week I think it was uh, about the plans that, that you have there so just talk us through what's uh, what the next year has in store at the Beaumont. Yeah thank you thank you for asking we're, we're incredibly excited about it 
Um, so the, the, we, we were, um, the hotel purchased, or when, when the hotel was, was sold, we were able to purchase a building that is adjacent to the Beaumont on 2 Providence Court. And uh, we have received planning permission this summer uh, to d demolish the building, um, build the basement, and then build a foundation for uh, at least 25 more guest rooms and some more private dining rooms. So we were, we're, we're thrilled to expand, you know, the, the hotel. And, and uh, the hotel has been incredibly busy over the last couple of years. And we, we really see the need to, to, to extend it and to build more guest rooms. And at the same time, we use the opportunity to look at some of the areas of the hotel itself and, uh, you know, uh, upgrade and, and, and touch up some of the areas and make some changes that we feel right now our, our guests would like to see. And, and, and we're incredibly excited about it. And we are fortunate to have investors and that, that look at this hotel with a very long term view and have allowed us to you know, retain the, the team right now during this period, wow. um, yeah. which we're, we're incredibly grateful for. And I've always said, and I, I strongly believe that, you know, the, the success of a hotel is its team. This team today at the Beaumont is responsible. And it's thanks to this team that, that we've had the success that we had over the last couple of years. And they're the biggest asset that we need to protect. And um, having the, the support from, our investors to do that um, we're an incredibly fortunate place to do so so great things in store i always say to the team onwards and upwards and the best is yet to come and i i can't wait to reopen our doors to welcome all of our guests and wonderful supporters back to the hotel and yet at the same time we felt it was the right decision to keep the hotel closed now until late next spring and and also you know, recognize these very uncertain times and keep, you know, our team safe and our guests safe and, and sort of use this time. And how do they say, you know, if, if you're being dealt lemons, make lemonade. And we were trying to right now use this downtime to really get on uh, with these very noisy works while not inconveniencing anybody. And, uh, you know, time will fly, to be honest. And um, yeah. I know it's going to be uh, feel like the day after tomorrow that I'm going to stand at the forecourt and welcome everybody back. And the team and I can't wait. And it has been heartwarming of how many emails and support and telephone calls we've received from all of the, the, the wonderful supporters, the travel agent community, but our guests. And, you yeah. know, the, the Beaumont is personal. This hotel means so much to us and it means so much to our guests. This is about meaningful relationships and when people call us they don't really ask on when are you reopening and you know how's the design gonna look like but they say how's angel how's colin how's alessandro how's katarina people remember people and yeah. the the luxury hospitality in the next decades will more and more uh, circle around meaningful relationships because you can't write a software for it you, you you can't you know replicate it it needs to grow a, a culture a place where people feel there's a sense of belonging and it will be one of the key elements of luxury hospitality moving forward um how do i feel while i stay at a hotel how do people yeah. make me feel and at the same time how do i feel working at a hotel because the one of the big shifts that we're seeing and, and rightfully seeing and should see 
even more is that it's not so much about only looking at shareholder value, but we need to look at stakeholder value. You know, yeah. we need to become more and more places where people aspire to work, where people feel they develop and, and, and become better people and better professionals and 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 look at the long term success of the team that will, you know, result in great results for the shareholders. Here, here. I do know I don't yeah. think again you you used the phrase rocket science earlier on that it's it's not rocket science i think that's that's really basic psychology affecting business positively and i think it feels like this is uh it's a statement that's that, that i've heard and you i use it myself quite a lot that actually if you if you concentrate on making sure that every element of your business is happy and obviously the people are a, a big part of that, then the profit comes. Yeah, it's a consequence of it. And people will yeah. pay people will pay the highest rate for human connection because you, you can't order that on Prime. You can't buy that. You cannot buy for somebody to care for you. And so they'll become more and more of a luxury and um, I think that as a as a hotel team and as a hospitality business, I think we will be challenged over the next 10, 20 years on who works in a hotel. What is a hotel? What is it that we need to learn to be the best people in our profession? Because systems will take away and computers will take away a lot what we learn for years and years and years. You know, like there's so many algorithms that are already available to give you advice on your rates and advice on you know of how you should structure an element you know of, of the strategy of your business so i i do i do challenge our team here and i do challenge myself as to what is the best education that you want to give somebody who is 18 now who wants to be a gm what yes. is it that they actually need to learn and does our current hospitality education program and sort of career of, you know, rattling down these positions to eventually be the GM, does that actually equip you with what you need to not only lead a team, but also create an environment where, where people feel a, a deep sense of belonging? And, and do we equip our young leaders enough with that? And to an extent, you know, me being a concierge for the biggest part of my career, if you speak to Rafael Sorrentino, Roderick Levijac, Rafael Palais, Maria, you know, Gonzalez in, in Barcelona, these people are concierges, yes. They're hospitality professionals, yes. But but they're writers, they're poets, you know, they 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 have so such varied and, and large educational background that, that leads them to be a, a, this head concierge living and speaking about the, you know, the most beautiful and interesting things in life for, for all their careers, that they become incredible educators. And I think the role of concierge, you know, as much as it's under threat at the moment, because everything is called concierge at the moment, right. It will be one of the most important positions in the hotels of the future because we need people who are educated in life, in 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 you know in in the arts, in 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 music, and in in the art of creating relationships. 
And I wouldn't yep. be surprised if if the concierge profession will take a leadership role in educating future hotel leaders because they have so much to add to the occasion that maybe a more traditional sort of, you know, learn opera and, you know, to check in, check out people. Whereas this is important, I think in the long run, it, it might be just assumed as a basic. But what will make the difference is, you know, what else have we taught people to, to become people that can lead teams and, and, and inspire and create environments that guests feel that, that they belong? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a really wonderful perspective. Um, and and actually something that I hadn't really thought about before until you'd mentioned it. But this is why we need the the conversations with as many people as possible because the uh, I completely agree with everything that you say about you know we have to keep questioning everything. Is this the right way to do things? Is there a better way? Um, and the the answer is always yes. There is always a better way. We're never going to get perfection uh, in any place. But um, I think that's a it's a really interesting perspective, and I, I thank you for for sharing that. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I I believe I believe in I believe in it. And hospitality businesses are businesses where we bring people together, and I think that's one of the the saddest elements of this current crisis that we're sort of trying to operate these places while keeping people apart, but. That's not what this industry is about, and I don't think that we'll see a paradigm shift, you know, to uh, keeping people apart in hospitality for for the long run. I think that obviously we need to respect and protect people that are around us at the moment, and hotels have taken the lead. And I think there's no safer environments today than hospitality businesses mm. um, for for people to to spend time in, um, you know. Everybody has has gone to such great lengths to protect not only their teams but their clients. But on yeah. the long run, you know, people want real people and real relationships, and and that that ought to be the focus um, to that. And as much as technology is replaceable, having a real connection with somebody is not replaceable and takes time to grow. So we need to equip this young generation right now, growing up, and saying to them, you know how can we immerse you in 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 hospitality and in life to to become ambassadors for it and for the industry absolutely i'm uh, i'm conscious of time but uh, before we kind of start wrapping this up i know you've shared a couple of stories already but are, are there any burning stories of fun and frolics that you could share with us from your career so far well um well, I mentioned it, I mentioned you uh, earlier in our conversation in New York. It was, I mean, you know, there's there's so many incredible stories that over you know a, a Korean hospitality you encounter. But I remember once installing a, a nine feet tall ice sculpture in a guest room, form of a, a rose, completely backlit with you know dry ice and smoke and for for a client who you know came to the desk and the conversation started with i want to buy some flowers for my fiance and we ended up transforming the entire suite into i mean something that you know businesses you know would not sometimes have the expenses to do that but yeah. um yeah that was incredible uh, and uh, and something that that I'll that I'll remember for for a long time 
a nine foot ice sculpture. That, yeah, that, we, that we obviously way. didn't. Oh, tons. It was, yeah. I think it was a ton. But it was, it was obviously we had to speak to, it wasn't quite a ton. It was like 700 kilos or something. But we had to speak to even the structural, the engineering team. Can we actually bring this in the hotel? Can we put it on the floor? And then they needed to sculpture it. And obviously, well, we didn't, but the company did. And then they sort of had to finish it in the suite. And it was, it was quite the, um, quite the operation. But, you know, it just, in New York, one of the biggest lessons, life lessons that I've learned is just because you don't know it exists doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Yep. You know, I, I, this this spirit of New York of everything is possible. And, and you know, it, it's a good life lesson. And I've, I've, I've come across this ever since often that just because it seems implausible to you or, you know, your current expectation or your current education won't think it's possible doesn't mean it isn't stay curious yeah. and, and try to find ways of, of, of looking at making things possible. And yeah, one of the things in New York was a nine feet, uh, nine foot big uh, rose sculpture from, yeah. from clear ice, uh, which I thought was impossible, but, um, and there's, I mean, there's so many more of these stories. Um, oh yeah. Well, I think a lot of them are unrepeatable as well, but it doesn't mean that they're, they're not fun. And there's so many, so much learning comes out of the the the, the things that make it to the storyboard. There's um, you know, I can't imagine what the learning was to to make that happen. And that totally summarizes what you were saying earlier that you know, in a, a hotelier's mind, the the answer is always yes, even if you don't know how to get to the yes. There's a there's a way to figure that out. Yeah, it's about attitude, is it? It's, I think, you know, a, a great sort of leadership mantra that I've always adhered to is if you continuously do the right thing and it doesn't benefit yourself, you know, people will always respect your decisions. And I think this integrity is incredibly important. And as much as we not maybe are always able to make everything possible, if you keep your integrity and and and, and do things to benefit people around you and not benefit you know yourself then um, there's a book called karmic management which i read years ago which sort of proclaims that you know look after the people that are around you and that will eventually put you in a good position you know yeah and and i i, I really think that's the right outlook in life you know care for the people that are around you and and look after them and and that will give you great satisfaction yourself you know and and uh, Absolutely. If you expect nothing in return, it's amazing how much does return. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's the right, right way of looking at things. Yeah, absolutely. Super. Well, I, I, one of the articles I read uh, about you, somebody described you as one of the most articulate and passionate people I've met in recent memory. Uh, it's very, very difficult to argue with that. You're, you've got a really easy way of articulating the... Um, whatever comes into your brain. The problem I have with my brain is, is that my brain's already six levels ahead in the conversation. So I, I have to, I'm always catching up with myself, which means I get lost a lot of the time. So please, please, please keep doing what you're doing. As I said at the beginning, I'm a massive fan of the hotel. I can't wait to see what it'll look like uh, under the redevelopment as well. I'm sure that, um, that you guys will do a, a, an amazing job there. So, so thank you. Well, thank you, Phil, and, and thank you for what you're doing for the industry and, 
you know, uh, creating that forum and really using this time to, you know, to do something meaningful that, that you know, helps people and inspires people. And, um, uh, and I think we're, we're all very grateful for, for the work that you're doing and, and looking very much forward to seeing you again when this turning door turns again next year. Yeah. We can all travel again and, and, and be united. Um, Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for the for the kind words as well. That's 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 really very kind of you. Just before we go, if people want to reach out to you to learn a little bit more about you, your story, what you're doing, the Beaumont, anything, what's the best method for them to to do that? Well, I, you know, I think like so many people, we're sort of you know connected in so many ways. I mean, LinkedIn is something that I use quite regularly, but you know, my email address is. Uh, is 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 on there get in touch with me obviously directly um i'm sort of on on instagram and facebook but i'm i'm not very good with it but you you yeah. know where to find me um uh, and uh, very happy to get in touch with anybody of course fabulous that's great well thank you once again and uh, wish you well through this this next period same for you phil and thank you for your time you're very welcome take care bye bye phil thanks Johnny. bye bye and there we have it. What an amazing story so far for Yanis, really proving that maintaining your humility throughout can play a really positive role in progress. Nice one, Yanis. Don't forget, we launch a brand new episode each week, so hit that subscribe button and give us a like and a share where you can. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.